So we're going to be on page 876 if you have the Pew Bibles with you. Uh, if not, turn to Matthew 21 in your Bible. We are continuing on from the discussion that Jesus is having with the Pharisees, the religious leaders that Brian led us into last time we got together. And I want to ask a question before we get into it. The question is, have you ever been delusional? Google says delusional is defined as holding idiosyncratic beliefs or impressions that are contradicted by reality or rational argument. Have you ever been delusional? Oh, yeah. I was about seven, eight years old, maybe, and I woke up in the middle of the night, and I couldn't sleep. The reason I couldn't sleep, because the music was too loud, and I didn't know where the music was coming from, so I got out of my bed, and I walked into my hallway, and there was a saxophone mounted to the wall playing really loud music. And it was a metal, like a real saxophone, but it had that kind of cartoony wiggle to it that saxophones do when they play music. The bell was kind of pulsating, and it was shaking to the rhythm, and it was unacceptable. I could not sleep. So I walked into my parents' bedroom, and I shook my dad and I said, Dad, I cannot sleep. The saxophone in the hallway is keeping me awake. And my dad said, what? <laughs> and, and I said, Dad, the saxophone in the hallway is keeping me awake. And he said, there is no saxophone in the hallway. And I said, no, it, there is, and it is keeping me awake. And somehow, I got him out of bed, and we walked to the hallway, and strangely, the saxophone was gone. And I had no explanation for this. I, and I said, my dad, it was here just a minute ago, and it was loud, and it was keeping me awake. And he said, son, you were, you were dreaming. You were sleepwalking. There's no saxophone. See, that's what it means to be delusional, to not be seeing the world correctly. Jesus is telling a story here. He's, he's going from his last parable to this next parable about this vineyard. And he's going to tell the story of some delusional people, some people that do not see the world correctly. Look at verse 33. He says, listen to another parable, another story. There was a landowner who planted a vineyard, put a fence around it, dug a wine press in it, and built a watchtower. He leased it to tenant farmers and went away. And when the time came for harvest fruit, he sent his servants to the farmers to collect his fruit. Okay, everything about this story is totally normal right now. There's, there's business being done in ancient Israel. Someone with means purchases some property, has a vineyard planted on it, uh, sets it up to be secure with a fence, sets it up to be um, useful with a wine vat. They're going to grow grapes and they're going to turn it into wine. This guy's a money guy. We all know money guys who are like investors, but they're not going to swing a hammer, right? So they, he, they, he pays some other guys to do the work for him. Some farmers come in, you're going to farm, you're going to take care of this vineyard, you're going to process these grapes into wine, you're going to make a living from this, and then I'm going to get the profits from my investment. Makes sense. Verse 35, the farmers took his servants who had come to collect the fruit, beat one, killed another, and stoned a third. And again, he sent other servants, more than the first group, and they did the same to them. So this is where it starts to spiral out of control. These tenant farmers, these, these men who have been hired to 
tend this vineyard and and take the proceeds and give it back to the owner, decide they're not going to do that. They're going to break their lease agreement. And they're going to do it violently. They're going to attack the servants of the landowner and refuse to give the owner what is due him. And so the owner thinks to himself in verse 37, he sends his son to them and says, they will respect my son, he said. And I love the heart there. Like maybe it's just a misunderstanding. Maybe, this, maybe there's something that, that I'm not communicating correctly. I will send my son. Surely they will respect my son. It's an offer of grace. It's an offer of giving the benefit of the doubt. Maybe there's something going on here that I just, I just need to send my son and they will honor my son and we'll get this all worked out and everything will be okay. But then in verse 38, when the tenant farmers saw the son, they said to each other, this is the heir. Come, let's kill his inheritance. So they seized him, threw him out of the and killed him. Now, this is where the tenants start to show how delusional they are. They see the son coming, and they say, we're going we're gonna to kill the son, and we'll be able to take the inheritance. And if you're thinking, like, that's not really how inheritance works, you're right. It's not how inheritance works. It doesn't make any sense. The son isn't, like, wa- walking around with a card that says, my inheritance, that they can just steal It's possible that they see the the vineyard as the inheritance, but even then, if they kill the son, the landowner still owns the vineyard, and they've committed this great crime. They don't inherit the property of the landowner just because they've killed the son. They are delusional. It doesn't make any sense that their plan would work. It reminds me of that insurance commercial where the, the ladies are sitting in the living room and they've got all the pictures on the wall and she said, I put all my vacation pictures on my wall. And the other lady says, that's not how this works. That's not how any of this works. And she goes, I unfriend you. These men, they can take the vineyard by killing the son. But that's not even possible because they're not thinking straight. They're not seeing the world correctly. Then Jesus asks his audience how this crazy situation is going to play out. Verse 40, therefore, when the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those farmers? He will completely destroy those terrible men, they told him, and lease his vineyard to other farmers who will give him his fruit at the harvest. The religious leaders know the right answer to this question. The landowner is going to exercise judgment and justice against these men. These men have committed great crimes against his servants, against his own son, and they're going to be brought to justice. There's something funny about this answer, though. The religious leaders say, you know what, the, the, the landowner, he's going to He's going to come after these guys, and then he's going to put in other farmers so that he can get his fruit. And I just think, like, do you think he cares about his fruit anymore? They've killed all his servants, and they killed his son, and he's like, you know, I just need to get some better farmers so I can get the grapes out of this vineyard. That's a weird thing to focus on for the Pharisees, for the religious leaders. But there's a reason that they're doing this. 
It's because Jesus isn't just making this story up. Some of his stories, some of the parables he tells are just kind of inventions of his own. He just talks about a farmer or he talks about a, a tree and, and he, he creates a story to, to tell a, um, to give a, a truth. But this story is not originally Jesus' story. And, and the religious leaders know this. If you can turn to Isaiah chapter 5, that's in the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament. The prophet Isaiah writes a song in chapter 5 of his book, and it goes like this. I will sing about the one I love, a song about my loved one's vineyard. The one I love had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He broke up the soil, cleared it of stones, and planted it with the finest vines. He built a tower in the middle of it and even dug out a wine press there. Does that sound familiar? He expected it to yield good grapes, but it yielded worthless grapes. So now residents of Jerusalem and men of Judah, please judge between me and my vineyard. What more could I have done for my vineyard than I did? Why, when I expected a yield of good grapes, did it yield worthless grapes? Now I will tell you what I am about to do to my vineyard. I will remove its hedge, and it will be consumed. I will tear down its wall, and it will be trampled. I will make it a wasteland, and it will, be, it will not be pruned or weeded. Thorns and briars will grow up. I will also give orders to the clouds that rain should not fall on it. For the vineyard of the Lord of armies is the house of Israel and the men of Judah, the plant he delighted in. He expected justice, but saw injustice. He expected righteousness, but heard cries of despair. It's not a very catchy song. <laughs> but beat for beat, it's just like this story that Jesus is telling. There's a vineyard, and there's, he, he plants a vineyard and a fence and a, a wine press and a tower. And so the religious leaders know what Jesus is talking about. He, they know that the vineyard is God's people. The people of Israel, the people of Judah, they are God's vineyard. They have been called, they've been set aside from all the other nations. They've been given special recognition, special relationship with Yahweh to produce fruit, to live lives that look different from the world around them. And they've been given a mission to show all the other nations what it's like to serve God, to be God's people, to be part of God's family. And in Isaiah's day, the whole nation had decided they didn't want that job. He describes the fruit that they produce as worthless. It's not good fruit. And he tears down the vineyard and starts over. And the, the whole nation goes into captivity in Babylon about 500 years before Jesus' day. And so for Jesus to start telling this story about a man who owned a vineyard, immediately cues Isaiah in the minds of the religious leaders. And so they say, you know what the important thing about this story is? The important thing about this story is the fruit. He will completely destroy those terrible men and lease his vineyard to other farmers who will give him his fruit at the harvest. Jesus' story is still concerned with fruit. But in Jesus' version, it's not the vineyard's fault, it's the people in charge of the vineyard. 
He's speaking to Israel's leadership, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the scribes, the teachers, the pastors, the individuals whose job it was to lead the people in a way to where they could flourish and worship and serve God. And Jesus is saying, you have led this nation to unfruitfulness. And the way they did that is inside the story. The way they did that is because they thought that this whole thing belonged to them. The tenants think, if we can just get rid of all these servants, if we can get rid of the son, we can have all this to ourselves. And Jesus is saying, you guys, you leaders, you've done the same thing. You think this all belongs to you. You think that you know what's best. And they are delusional. They are not seeing the world correctly. Their power and the greed and their ego have blinded them to the truth. They have been set up and called by God to serve God's people for God's benefit, and they're failing. But the crazy thing is, is they think that they're doing all right. They don't know that they're failing. They think that they're leading the nation well. Jesus says, you think you're producing fruit for God, but you're actually just producing fruit for yourselves. He sends his his servants who are the prophets. The prophets come to Israel and they say, hey, God wants you to live a life like this, and they push them away. And then he finally sends his son. We know his son is, is Jesus himself. And Jesus is saying, and you're going you're gonna to kill the son rather than submit to his leadership. And in just a few days from now, Jesus will be thrown out of the city and killed by the Romans at the request of these men that he's talking to. But Jesus doesn't stop there. In verse 42, he says, Have you never read in the Scriptures, and I love this, Jesus says this a few times, he's always talking to the Bible scholars when he says this. It's like just such a smack in the face, and I I probably shouldn't have that so much, but Jesus is so cool. Have you even read the Bible, you guys? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is what the Lord has done, and it is wonderful in our eyes. Jesus quotes Psalm 118. And it's a beautiful psalm. It's been quoted in the last chapter a little bit when the, when the people were shouting, Hosanna, save us. That's part of Psalm 118. But this other part of Psalm 118 is a story about rocks. And in this story, the, the builders are building something, probably the temple. Jesus is at the temple. The temple is this huge building. And the way the temple is constructed is with these giant rocks. They're like six feet by six feet by like 15 or 18 feet long. They're huge. These are things like where we look at old buildings, we're like, I don't even know how I would build that today, let alone 2,000 years ago. How in the world did they construct this thing? But they did. They, They would quarry these giant stones and then drag them and float them to the building site and then use levers and pulleys and all kinds of ingenious things to get them into place. And they come across this stone, and they look it over, and they're like, nah, the color's wrong. 
the shape's wrong. I, I, don't, I don't really think this stone fits in the building at all. I don't really think we have any use for this one. And at the end of the project, they realized that the one that they rejected, the one that they didn't think they had a use for, that was the most important stone. That was the one that fit as the cornerstone. The cornerstone is visible on two sides, so it has to be straight both directions, and it connects the walls together. It holds up the whole building. It's the most important stone in the project, and the builders missed it. They looked it over, and they rejected it. And Jesus is doing something really cool here. Jesus is probably speaking either Hebrew or Aramaic. Little, little Bible trivia. The Bible we have is obviously in English, but it's translated from Greek. The old manuscripts we have were written in Greek, probably because most people in the first century spoke Greek. And if you wanted to get the Gospel of Matthew out to as many people as possible, Matthew wrote it in Greek and sent it around the Roman Empire. But Jesus, we have clues in the Gospels that Jesus is probably not speaking Greek and definitely not in His conversations with the religious leaders. They would be speaking Hebrew or Aramaic. Those are both very similar languages that would have been common back then. The word for son, the son that's killed in the vineyard, the word for son in Hebrew is ben, B-E-N. The word for stone, the stone that the builders rejected, is eben, And so, with just an addition of a letter, Jesus is taking two stories, a story about a son who is killed and a story about a stone that is rejected but is vindicated, and He's connecting them. And I think that's super interesting because Jesus is a son that is going to be killed. He's going to be taken out of the city, and he is going to be murdered by the religious leaders at the hands of Rome because he is unacceptable to their power structure. He is a threat to them. But in their rejection of him, he is also the stone that will ultimately be set as the cornerstone. He will rise from the dead three days later and ascend to heaven and rule and reign as king. Psalm 118 says, this is what the Lord has done, and it is wonderful or amazing in our eyes. Jesus, the son that is killed, will be vindicated from his enemies. So look at verse 43. Therefore, I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruit. Jesus has come and He's going to replace this broken temple system, this system that we saw a few weeks ago. He turned over the tables and He said, this isn't working anymore. We're going to replace it. And you as leaders, you're, you're not going to be leading it anymore because you are leading badly. And a new people is going to be given the job of producing fruit. A new people that that we know later on is composed not just of Jewish people, but of Jewish people and non-Jewish people of every tribe and color and nation get to participate as citizens of the kingdom of God. 
They get to be given this kingdom to tend, this kingdom that belongs to God. They, they get to rule and reign in it on His behalf. In verse 44, whoever falls on this stone will be broken to pieces, but on whomever it falls, it will shatter him. So then he, he, he brings back this, he, he says, a new people will be given the vineyard to produce fruit. And then he goes back to the stone metaphor. And he quotes two places in the Hebrew Bible. He quotes Isaiah 8 and Daniel 2. And in Isaiah 8, the people of God don't understand who, what God is doing because God is a stone and they stumble over Him. And they're destroyed because they, they miss Him. And in Daniel 2, the kingdom of God is a stone that comes in and crushes the powers of this world. There are two different ways that Jesus says that you can interact with this stone that end in destruction. One of them is active. It can crush you. It will fall on you and crush you. And one is passive. You can trip over it and be destroyed. And so we, we come to the end of, of Jesus' words here, and, and it's important to recognize that He's speaking to the religious leaders of Israel. He's speaking to a group of men that have, uh, for their own selfish reasons, led a whole nation astray. And it's possible to just read that and be like, well, I'm glad I'm not a leader in Israel, and be done. But I think that God has something for us in here. Because if, if today you, you and I are saying we are, we are God's people, we are, we are citizens of God's kingdom, if, if you say, I'm a Christian, you've been given a lot. You've been given an opportunity to steward God's kingdom on earth. You've been given God's Holy Spirit inside you. You've been given the mandate to spread the gospel everywhere you go. You've been given gifts by the Holy Spirit. And we've been asked to steward, to be like these farmers, to take care of the kingdom and produce fruit. And that's our job. And if you're here and you're not a Christian today, if you, if you would say, I, I, don't, I don't know that I believe that or I'm, I'm, I don't follow Jesus, that's the offer. Come to me, all you who are laboring and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. I will make you citizens of my kingdom. I will make you sons and daughters of my Father, and I will give you gifts and opportunities and abilities to walk through life a different way. And we run into a problem because we're delusional. Just like the farmers, we think all of this is ours, all of this stuff. I come to work every day, and I tend these vines, and I make this wine, and it all belongs to me. But it doesn't. It belongs to the landowner. He, you're just working for him. And so we go to work, and we say, you know, I work hard for my money. My paycheck belongs to me. I, I bought all these things in my house. They all belong to me. 
this is my spouse, these are my children, this family belongs to me. This is my job. These are my dreams, my passions. This is what I'm going to be when I grow up, and it belongs to me. These are my rights. I'm an American. It belongs to me. Whatever it is, we don't hold it loosely as a gift from the Father. We hold it tightly, and we think it's ours to possess. I was frustrated this weekend, looking at the news, looking at the things going on in our country, and just grieving the road that I fear that we're going down. And I, I was just talking to God about it. And He said, why do you think any of this belongs to you? Why are you so stressed out about this? This is not your problem. You're just here to produce fruit. But if we're delusional and we think all of this belongs to us, whatever it is, we will miss Jesus. But the other way we can be delusional is like with the builders in the stone. We can look at Jesus. We can see Jesus. We can study the Word and we can sit under teaching about Him and we can understand who He is and what He's like and go, yeah, I don't really think He fits in my life. I don't really think He works for me. He's a little crooked here, and I don't like the color, and it just doesn't really suit everything else I have going on. I have no need for Him. I have, you know, I have problems. Everybody's got problems. But I just don't think, I just don't think Jesus is the solution to my problems. And that's another kind of delusion, because the builders reject the very stone that's going to hold up their entire building. Look at verse 45. When the chief priests and the Pharisees heard his parables, they knew he was speaking about them. (laughs) They know he is speaking about them. How many of us today are hearing the Word of God and we know it is speaking about us? Maybe we are... Maybe we've been following Jesus for a long time, but we've allowed everything that's going on in 2020 to get us off track. Maybe, maybe you're here and you're, you're not a Christian. You've never put your trust in Christ, and, and you just think, well, you know, Jesus is this thing off to the side. I know people that are like that. It's not for me. But today, Jesus is speaking about us. What are we going to do about it? What do they do about it? Verse 46, although they were looking for a way to arrest him, they feared the crowds because the people regarded him as a prophet. They are, they are motivated by Jesus' speech. They, don't, they aren't motivated in a good way. They're angry with him. They want to act against him, but they don't. Why? Because they're afraid. They're motivated more by the fear of people than anything else. They have to hold on to their power, their position, their reputation, and Jesus is a threat to that, but so are the crowds. And if today, if we are people that are hearing the voice of God saying, hey, these things, these don't belong to you, or maybe we're hearing the voice 
of Scripture saying, hey, Jesus is what you need. Jesus is the only piece that fits here, and it's the most, He's the most important piece. And instead, we're afraid. We're afraid to admit weakness. We're afraid to admit failure. We're afraid of the loss of respect or maybe the loss of stuff. What if, what if God says, none of this belongs to you and I want you to get rid of it? That's scary. Power, position, authority. The, th- the fear that people might know what's really going on underneath the, pa- the mask you put on all the time. Some of us are good at that. Depending on what room we walk into, we have a whole different set of masks to wear to show just the perfect image of what we're like. What we're really like is still hidden. Coming out of delusion can be hard. When I was a teenager, I got my wisdom teeth pulled. And uh, in my pre-op visit, I was talking with the oral surgeon, and she learned that I played the piano. And she said, oh, my brother is a professional pianist. He has, uh, he just recorded an album. We, we offer uh, music for patients to listen to during the procedure. Would you like to listen to his album while you're out, while I'm pulling your wisdom teeth? And I said, sure. And so the day came and I, I got down in the chair and, and I got a tape Walkman from the olden times. And they, she set it on my lap and I had a little, you know, the little tiny metal headphones with the fuzzy foam ears, yeah, and put that on my ears, and, you know, and then they give me the laughing gas, and I slowly fade out of reality. And for the next however long, it could have been days, I don't know, I was listening to this piano music. But then all of a sudden, the music stopped. The tape didn't end but there was no more music left on the tape. And all of a sudden, I became aware of things. People were talking. There was a sound of a really high-pitched drill. I could smell smoke. (laughs) And I didn't like it. I wanted my delusion to continue. And so so I thought, okay, we got to get this music back. And I didn't really know how to do that, but I knew that the Walkman was in my lap. So I just started kind of, I don't know, I wasn't going to find it, and I didn't have any kind of motor skills to actually rewind it and start over, but I was going to do this and see if I could find something. And I heard outside in the darkness, oh, look, he thinks he's playing the piano. (laughs) And so for the remainder of my oral surgery, I listened to and smelled the sounds of what was going on around me. But you know what? Delusion is comfortable. We don't have to think about hard things. We don't have to deal with reality. We can make up stories about how our life works and the way reality is. Reality is sometimes hard to come to grips with. And the fact is, reality is Jesus is king. Jesus is ruling and reigning over the universe, and His kingdom is spreading day by day throughout the world. And there are many forces at work to stop it, but they are going to fail. And Jesus' people are going to be vindicated. And we all have an opportunity to be part of that. 
We all have an opportunity to be citizens of that kingdom, to produce fruit for God, to, to have lives that are meaningful, that count for something in the end, and continue on into forever. But we have to be willing to come out of that delusion. We have to be willing to look at the circumstances the way they are, to admit that none of this belongs to us, and that the only thing that fits the hole that we're feeling is the cornerstone, is Jesus Himself. Delusion typically comes from being under the influence of something. Drugs. Some substance. We are spiritually delusional because we let ourselves come under the influence of everything that this world has to offer for us. The voices of Hollywood and social media and the news and keeping up with the people next door and whatever else our particular drug is. We saturate our lives with imagery and half-truths and outright lies that get into our souls and prevent us from seeing the world the way it really is. And I think one of the antidotes to that is right here at the communion table. We, we have this interesting idea of, of church, and, and it's, it's sometimes we think like the, the sermon is why we go to church. We go to church so that somebody uh, with some sort of, you know, special pin that says teacher on it gets to could talk at us for half an hour every week. That's what church is about. And, and you know, if, and it's so great, we should record it and then send it out over the internet and podcast it and, you know, send it out on tapes and DVDs and whatever else because that's what it's about. Or maybe we think it's the music. We come and I love the music at this church and you know what, you guys should record that. And then it's a record deal and a distribution deal and it's like t-shirts and concerts and it's the music. And those are both great things. I love sermons and I love music. But I think this might be the most important part of our gathering this morning. Because we come to the communion table as one people. Everybody is united in Christ at communion. We, t we remember, Jesus says, remember what he has done for you. The bread is his broken body. The blood the cup. The communion table is at the front. It's in the center because Jesus is at the front, is in the center of everything that we are about. And we have an opportunity every week, and we do it every week because I think it's so important to remind ourselves who we are, remind ourselves who Jesus is, what He's done for us, right? He gave His life for us so that we could be made new. And sermons and songs are great, and we're going to keep doing them, but take the table seriously. Center your heart right now as we prepare to sing a little bit more. Seek the Lord. Just take a few minutes to come up here, grab the elements, go back to your seat, and say, God, where am I delusional? Where am I not seeing things correctly? How is my life out of whack? And what do I need to do to reorient it around 
who Jesus is and what he's done for me. You've been listening to the Revelation Church Coeur d'Alene podcast. Learn more about Revelation Church at revelationcda.com.